I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Claire has a type, and that type is a guy who is hot. As it happens, I like hot guys too. So Claire and I, we understand each other. We met and he, again, was incredibly beautiful. And I'm, sen- I'm sensing a trend. Uh, yeah, you are, Meredith. You are me- sensing a trend. Incredibly beautiful and plays the guitar and writes lovely songs. And I just fell absolutely head over heels in love with him. He used to be in a band in the 80s and they had a couple of hits. I think they had a number one hit in Iceland or somewhere crazy. Oh, my God. When we when we get offline, I'm going to make you tell me off the record who this is because I'm desperate. To no, know. you can't. You won't. You won't know. And and okay, or, you won't tell me. No, I, well, I won't tell you. But you anyway, if you think of George Michael in the 80s. Oh, right. Yes. Well, he looked like George Michael in the 80s, but with white trousers in his band with his guitar. Right. So it was pretty gorgeous. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. One of the things I'm realizing this season, as we dwell on lessons we learn at different ages, is that really, we never stop learning. You might fall madly in love and have a happy marriage, but as you enjoy and tend to that partnership, the lessons just keep coming. That's not a bad thing. We're supposed to be ever-evolving creatures, always working to be better to ourselves, better to the people we love. Today's story proves that. It's about understanding that one life can contain many great loves, each with its own distinct lessons. It's the story of a woman named Claire, who works in media and lives in England. She wrote into Love Letters to share her romantic history. We'll tell her story in three parts. Three loves, multiple lessons. And one quick note on the audio here. We had to rely on our Zoom call for part of this interview, if you're wondering why it sounds different in places. Hi, well, hello. I'm Claire. I'm in my early 70s. I am a single at the moment and have been for the last 20 years. I have four children. I have six grandchildren. I'm a career woman and had a family as well and still working um, part-time, sometimes full-time, freelance and loving it. Act one of Claire's story starts in the mid-1960s in England, when she was a young woman starting university. I'll let her set the scene. I was in love with the Beatles. I had my hair cut by Vidal Sassoon in London. I wore white courage boots and purple tights. I'd spent two years in London nightclubbing, Carnaby Street, Fashion, Jean Shripton, Vogue magazine. I bought my first Mary Quant dress in Chelsea and I literally had a fab time. I actually 
A friend of mine was very, very wealthy, and she was going out with somebody who I can't name because he was very famous. But we used to go to this club called the Ad Lib Club, which was in Leicester Square, where the Beatles went, and it was amazing. Claire begins college, and that's where she meets her first love. You will not be surprised to learn that this young man is very good-looking. I spotted him across the very beautiful refectory in Bristol, where the university is. And we were a group of us were talking about who we'd like to go out with. And I saw him from way over the side of the other side of the building. And I said to my friend, I said, him, I said, I'd like, I'll go out with him. He's beautiful. And he looked, he'd got, he looked like Robert Redford, beautiful, long blonde hair. So happened that three or four days later, I, um, I was acting in a drama that we were putting on and he was at the table selling the tickets. So that's how we met. Did you say to him, I have already chosen you? Or no. how did you? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, definitely not. I just smiled sweetly and said, and said, how nice to meet you. And we got on. As it turns out, Claire and love number one, as we'll call him, have a lot in common. They're both progressive young people who want to change the world. They're idealists with big aspirations. And they're totally smitten with each other. We were so young, but it was so good. It was as I'd always imagined being in love would be when, you, when you're young and you, you, you hear about love and you read books and you think, yeah, this is what it's like. And indeed, it was just like that for the, for the, for the first two or three years. They get married young. That wasn't unusual then. By 21, Claire has a husband and her first child. And then, then what happened? Well, then what happened? By the time I was 22, I had two babies and we had no money and I had never even worked. I mean, I got my degree and I trained to be a teacher and I managed to sit my finals nine months pregnant. So then I never worked when I had my first baby and then my second baby. And to be honest, it, it wasn't until we had no money that things got really tough. He was also very involved in politics, absolutely loved politics and found politics ultimately much more engaging intellectually than being married and having a family. And so the long and the short of it is things were, were wonderful for two or three years when the children were very young, but then that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to go out and be political and he wanted to change the world in the very idealistic way that we all were in the 60s. We wanted to go out and do things. But you wanted that too, obviously. I wanted that too. I wanted that too. So it's very, very tricky. This is where things get even more difficult. These shared desires start to compete with each other. It means they're no longer such a good match. If he'd been a bad person and if he'd been out drinking or womanizing or doing something, it would have been easy. I would have just said, you know, stop this, get out. But he wasn't. He's a genuinely really good man. Morally, he wanted to do the right thing. And my feeling was intellectually and emotionally, I should support him because he's doing the right thing. But it, actually what it did is it left me completely on my own at home bringing up children. In a strange city, I had no friends, no telephone, no family. 
And there's there's something so frustrating about, you know, this idea that you want to revolutionize the world and make it better. And yet the way in which one does that is to make sure a woman is at home with kids and has absolutely no opportunity to, you know what I mean? Like the lack of intersectionality there. With- absolutely. But then you've got to remember this was pre-Women's Live. That's why I was absolutely prime target for the Women's Live movement. I was the person that it was aimed at. When you have a, you're in a long-term relationship and you have two children, you your instinct is to stay together, make it work, and you carry on and you carry on and you carry on until such point that you realise that you're first of all as a woman you realise that you're looking at other men and being interested in other men. That's the first thing that happens. Um, all of a sudden you catch yourself thinking, mm, he's nice, or and somebody talks to you, somebody shows you a bit of interest. You know, you're not just a piece of a piece of furniture in the house. After a few years, Claire decides to change careers. She goes from teaching to journalism. And then she does something that alters the marriage in a major way. It's a decision fueled by passion and confidence and her new understanding of what she needs. What I did was I applied for a job without telling him, which I didn't think I'd get. I was working on our local newspaper um, where I lived in the north of England. And I saw this job, which was the job I wanted to do, which was absolutely the best job in the world. I thought, well, I'll apply. I've no chance of getting this whatsoever. So I just applied. And I got an interview and I was staggered. And by the, and at that point, I had to say, look, I've got an interview for this job. And he said, okay. And then I got it. And that required a move? I moved quite a long way, 60 miles away. And I said, look, I'll go over there and oh, during the week and come back at the weekends. And you will have to look after the children. Wow. Okay. So that's a big change for him. Massive. Absolutely massive. He said, okay. He said, okay, let's do that. He's, look, he's, a, very, he's a nice guy, right? There's, there's, this is not a bad man. But the marriage doesn't work like this. Claire's husband is supportive, she says. But now they're sort of doing their own thing, not growing together. When that happens, sometimes letting it be over is the healthiest thing. Claire and love number one are married for the better part of a decade. There were some wonderful times, but they know when to say goodbye. They had already done that, even though they weren't technically divorced yet, when Claire meets love number two. He's a man who can truly appreciate everything Claire is now. She's learned a lot from that first marriage. Now she's more assertive. She takes charge. And this new man, whom she meets at work, loves it. He was a lot younger than me, so it was a fabulous relationship for me. It was everything that I wasn't getting in my marriage. It was fun. We had a lot of laughs. He liked the children very much, and they liked him. All of a sudden, it was like new life, breath of fresh air. This is not what I'm used to. Number two guy was everything that number one wasn't. He was also beautiful, but he was very funny and very sharp and very witty and very clever. I mean, he wasn't serious and wanted to change the world. Uh, he, He was into sport and all kinds of stuff. 
Tell me about the influence of the sort of, you talk about second wave feminism and and sort of, I think it changed so many people's lives, but what influence did that have also on that concept of being the senior partner? Absolutely massive. I mean, if you think about it, I had my first child in 1969 and really I wasn't hit by the feminist movement until the early 70s. By the time I got to the end of the 70s, I'd been through the whole change of how I wanted to live my life. And the fact that I wanted to work and I wanted to do the job I wanted to do, I wanted to do how I wanted to do it, and I wanted to have my children as well. And yes, it was tough, but, but I, I knew that we were not going to be told what to do by men anymore. And if you look at Mrs. America, which I'm watching at the moment, right, it's brilliant. It's completely classic. And I keep saying to my older daughter, because we watch it together, yeah, that's 1972. That's me. That's me. That's me. That's glorious denim. That's me. That's what we were doing. But it's never as easy as it looks, right? This idea of like, you know, I think there are a lot of women in my generation, like Gen X, who are like, well, wait a minute, I was told I can do anything, but it's really hard to do everything, right? So there are still all these these pressures of, well, who's going to take care of my kid and who's going to, and if I wait longer to have kids, I mean, that that is one thing I'll, I notice a lot and I don't want to get us off topic, but that I in that, that sort of the effects of that feminist time was that a lot of people my age waited until they were like 39 to have kids. Which... My older daughter did exactly that. She is she has been the one who has suffered from exactly that. She and I are the perfect mirror image of exactly what's happened. Claire's second relationship starts in 1979. And then in the 80s, Claire and love number two have their own two children. This relationship seems to suit who she is now and what she needs in a partner. But Claire never stops learning. And as it turns out, there's a lot more learning to do. We'll be back. We're back. So Claire and love number two, a younger man who is career-driven and ambitious like her, who appreciates her for who she is, seems to be the right match for the woman she is now. But over time, her desire to have it all isn't so easy. Childcare is a real issue. Work-home balance is another. The busyness and the success were definitely affecting the relationship. I also have learnt that I am a very controlling person when it comes to bringing up my children. And I didn't allow, I think, my either of my partners to enough responsibility in childcare. I didn't let them in. I wanted to do it all myself. And I think that happens in many, many relationships. I seriously think that part and parcel of both the problems with my relationships was that I, I didn't let them in in a way. I wanted to do it all, I did it all, and they were ended up on the sidelines just watching it happen. It's interesting, and and I'm talking about straight relationships here where I have friends who are, you know, women married to men, and they simultaneously will be irritated that their husbands don't do more with the kids or aren't responsible for more. But then when those things are done, they're like, they're doing it wrong. That's exactly right. That's (laughs) absolutely. It's a trap. Absolutely right. It's a complete trap and it's dreadful. And the only way around it is to see it happening and to 
to change it. As I said to you when, when we first talked, Meredith, you know, youth is wasted on the young, as Oscar Wilde said. I could see it now and I could see how I could have changed it, but I, I didn't then. It takes many years for Claire's second relationship to dissolve. I think I must have become quite boring and not very interested in him. And the spark had gone away, as happens. You get worn down. It's just like a war of attrition. It's just like water drip, drip, dripping, and gradually, 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 everything goes. And by the time you've realised it's gone, it's too late to bring it back. In the end, we just we just didn't enjoy being together, and we decided that we'd split up, very sadly. They're together 20 years in all. When it does end, it's the late 90s, and Claire's in her 50s. She's learned so much about relationships by this point, and about herself. But at this point, she isn't looking for a new partner. She's focusing on work. She'd had a long-term illness, and she's in recovery. She's on her own and content with that. She might date here and there, but nothing monumental. You can't have full kids, a full-time job, be, you know, bright and pretty and attractive and interesting all the time. And do everything as well. And it was just too much. And then having been sick, I'd been so ill that I was just pleased to be better and getting better. And I just, no, I definitely wasn't looking for anybody else. But listen, there are just too many beautiful men in the world for Claire not to find another one. It was about... Four or five years after my second partner and I split up. This man, and we'll call him love number three, is the musician with a passing resemblance to George Michael. He is hot and talented, and he plays the guitar, and he makes her feel young. The musician, the falling for him was like going back to when I was 19. It's happened three times in my life, right? Love it, and it does happen, it really does. Literally, first sight, literally within seconds. Three times I have gone for somebody who is absolutely hook, line and sinker, and it's crazy. Claire's third love, whom she meets through her community, becomes a big part of her life. He helps her as she's caretaking for her parents. But he also brings his own experiences to the relationship. I realised that he had an alcohol problem quite early on, but I didn't realize how serious it was. Like, how long had you been dating and how seriously when you started to notice this kind of thing? Well, we always met in pubs and bars, so I should have known right from the beginning because he was somebody, he was single and had never been married, um, but had obviously had lots of relationships, but was totally single. And I was so busy. You know how you conduct a relationship if you're doing lots of other things. Um, and it wasn't until he got caught drink driving and then I realised this lovely man had a very, very, very serious alcohol problem. And I also then realised I'd been, I'd been helping his problem, I'd been enabling his problem. He was, you know, I would give him money to, to buy my father lunch and I would give him money to buy my father food and stuff. And I was actually enabling his drinking. And I'd, I learned a bit about what codependency is. And I'd, written, I'd read about codependency, but I didn't understand actually what it was. 
that in a relationship it takes two people to make make things like being an alcoholic work and it was and the relationship that I had with him which was quite unusual for uh, three or four years I finally decided nothing was ever going to change and here's another lesson Claire has learned she knows when to walk she knows when it's done I wasn't going to sit and hope. First of all, my life was disappearing quickly. And when you're at 20, you don't, you take decisions and you take longer to make them because you don't worry about the future. When you get into your 50s and 60s, you have to be, you're very aware of how much time you've got left. And the fact that you can't spend ages deciding on something, even if it's in your power. So how did you end that relationship with the with the musician? One day I realised that if I didn't end it, he was going to move in with his guitar. And I said, uh, oh, no, you're not. And that was it. One of the lessons that I take out of this is that I can be overly romantic about what a relationship should be. And and I know my the people who read my column feel this way, too, sometimes, especially the single ones. Like, the whole point is to meet someone and be with them until you are literally dying next to each other at 100 years old. And this is, you know, it's like the, the, the movie narrative that we get and that relationships aren't worth having if they're going to be any shorter than that. And I look at all these relationships you've had and I think, oh, my gosh, they were so worth yes, having. Yes, they were so worth that, having. That, that the ends of these relationships did not mark failure. They didn't no. mark wasted time. They, they were incredible experiences, all, Absolutely. Of, all of which enriched your life. Absolutely. Because I've talked to my daughters about this and they're grown up now and they say, Mum, don't don't be ridiculous. You did not fail. Don't think you did. I mean, I might feel that, but, but they say, you know, we would be happy if we managed to do what you've done. Life has slowed because of this pandemic. Like many of us, Claire has been home a lot. She isn't planning on a next love. That's okay. I love doing what I'm doing, and and lockdown was very lonely in parts for me, and that surprised me. And what surprised me about lockdown was I loved it to begin with, really loved it. But the, the lack of physical relationship was dreadful. Not being able to hug my grandchildren and my children. The new baby, you know, my daughter's had a new baby. I couldn't touch the baby for four months. And that was the thing. And I never realised how important the physical part of affection is on an everyday basis until you don't have it. I'm a bit fatalistic about it. If I meet somebody, I meet somebody. If I don't, I don't. I really genuinely don't want to lose my independence and my freedom. It would be lovely to have someone to go on holiday with. It'd be lovely to have somebody to have see at weekends. Um, but my idea of, of relationship now is on my terms completely. I have a horror of ending up pushing a supermarket trolley around with a man deciding what to buy. I mean, that for me is hell on earth. As a single 43-year-old, I feel you, Claire. Pre-pandemic, I would see couples do very weird and depressing things at grocery stores. No matter what happens in my life, I think I'll always be doing the food shopping on my own. But here's a lesson I pulled for myself out of Claire's story. At no point has the love run out. Claire kept falling in love. In moments where she thought that part of her life was over, 
it wasn't. And every time she started something new, she was better. I mean, right now is a pretty fantastic time to fall in love with Claire. Once this pandemic thing blows over, anyway. I get so many letters from people who feel like they'll never love again. And I believe they will. Or at least that they can. I mean, I believe that about myself. The thing you learn about getting older is that you, you keep making mistakes. They're different mistakes. You, I mean, the, the, the clever bit is to try not to make the same mistake over and over again. Thank you so much, Claire, for telling us your story. Thanks, Meredith. It's been a real pleasure and very interesting. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Jenna Serbo do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. Love Letters is also an advice column. Send your questions about your own relationships to loveletters at boston.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're online at loveletters.show. I love that the, the guitar always looks so great in the beginning, but then by the end, the guitar is, is <laughs> the guitar means something else. You're right. You're right. It's true. <laughs> I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.